Let's bow again together. Father, we do need You. We need You all the time. And I thank You that You are there for us when we turn and we look to You and we seek You. And Father, I pray as we gather here to this morning and praise You and worship You and now come to Your Word, that You would use it mightily in our hearts, that You would, uh, by Your Spirit, change us and grow us and encourage us and bless us, Lord God, through Your Word, so that You'd be glorified with the result. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we live in uh, a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. We have... uh, uh, a, a creation that is winding down. We have death. Uh, we have uh, disease. We have difficulty. Uh, we have sin. Uh, and we, because of these things, and also as we'll see our enemy Satan, we suffer at times as believers. We can suffer physically. We can suffer emotionally. We can suffer because of sin or sinners or even the result of our own sin. Uh, the reality is we are, as believers, those who will and do suffer. Now, when you suffer, when things are going not the way that you desire, not the way that would be even right, uh, what do you do? What do you turn to? What do you turn to? Who do you turn to when you suffer? We're going to see in our study of Colossians that in Christ we have been made complete. And that in him are all the full, all the fullness of deity dwells. That the person we need to turn to is the person of Jesus Christ. And yet with that in mind, as we're studying Colossians, I felt that we would take a look at a passage that uh, puts uh, um, flesh on that in a sense, that uh, reveals us how we are to turn to the Lord Jesus uh, in the midst of difficulties and temptation. You see, Jesus was tempted in the things that he suffered. Uh, He was sinless and is sinless and did not sin and could not sin. But yet, in his humanity, the scripture says he was tempted in the things that he suffered. We know he was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, one from whom men hid their face. We know in his humanity, he experienced the, the, the temptation that comes with the weakness of humanity apart from sin. And because of that, as we're going to see, uh, he is a merciful and faithful high priest, one that we need to go to. And again, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, although tempted, uh, is able to come to our aid because he did not fall because he's God. And he is the one who we are to turn to. Let's turn our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to see how we can find help in the midst of temptation. Now, often temptation certainly can come in the context of gratifying our sinful desires, whatever that might be. But for believers who have fallen the Lord, often the temptation comes in the midst of difficulty. How do we respond when things aren't going right? How do we respond when things are falling apart? What do we do? What do we do? Well, we're going to see today that, uh, again, we have a great high priest, Lord Jesus Christ. And so turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 16. Okay, so with that in mind, let me share a little bit of context for the book of Hebrews. Uh, We know that it was written sometime between 33 A.D. after the ascension of the Lord and sometime before 70 A.D., before Jerusalem was destroyed. 
Uh, we know that it was not written to prove that Christianity is superior to Judaism. It was written to prove that Christ and his new covenant was superior to the old covenant, which was a type and shadow of what was to come. Indeed, this is called in chapter 13, 22, a word of exhortation. That would be a, a phrase that the Jews would use in the synagogue to speak of a sermon, a word of exhortation. We see that, and it has a, a Christological, a Christ focus with exhortations and warnings woven throughout to really strengthen the author, inspired author's main point. We see in this book that God has given us superior revelation through his son Jesus, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, which surpasses all of the old covenant revelation. The son is the heir and creator of all things. He perfectly represents the father being God and now sits in a position of authority, having accomplished redemption, having accomplished his redemptive work. And then the author says, Within that, that God speaks through his son now, and then in chapter 12, 25, he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. He bookends this book that way and then gives applications afterwards. We need to listen to Jesus. We need to listen to him. And indeed, from chapter 1, verse 4 through chapter 12, the author, inspired by the Spirit, proves his main point, the superiority of Jesus Christ and his new covenant to the old covenant. Jesus is superior to angels, the messengers of the Old Covenant. He is superior to Moses, the apostle of the Old Covenant. He is superior to the priestly tabernacle sacrificial system uh, in that he himself is what it all points to and that he accomplished the once-for-all sacrifice that brought forgiveness of sins. And then we see in chapter 11... Uh, the author reveals the new covenant lifestyle as exhibited by old covenant saints, that those uh, who trusted the Lord in the Old Testament, they trusted him by faith and they endured, and that's what we do. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us uh, run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. And so we need to recognize that. We need to understand that. And so it helps us get reoriented uh, when we go through difficulties and suffering, whatever it might be. And so with this in mind, today we come to the portion of this uh, book where he begins to make the clear point that Jesus Christ is superior to his the Old Testament priestly sacrificial tabernacle system. And so we're going to see that, which includes the old high priest. And, and we're going to see that Jesus is our great High priest. So how can we find help in the midst of temptation and weakness, human weakness, human weakness in the midst of difficulties that come upon us? Uh, if you haven't recognized this lately, we are weak. We are frail. We are human. And we are those who were uh, 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 created by God, but we're in a fallen world. And yet God is gracious to have sent his son for us. And I believe the first thing we're going to see is we need to cling tightly by faith to Jesus. Again, I mentioned Colossians in our study that we're in. In him, we have everything we need, but how do we cling to him? What does it look like with, with, with flesh on it, in a sense? What does it look like in a real, in a real, uh, in a real uh, situation, in, 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 uh, in real circumstances? Verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is a really great passage. And it is so easy when things to go wrong to either get upset or to have a pity party. You know, we are weak, and when we recognize our weakness in those things, it's so easy to do that or to become arrogant, whatever it might be. Uh, but here we're seeing how we are to respond, how we are to respond because of who Jesus is. Now, before we get to our passage, did you notice there were two exhortations in a sense? They, they're not commands. These are exhortations. And we have commands in Scripture where God says, do this. But here, these are exhortations. They're based on the will. It's something that we should do and desire to do. And those two exhortations are, first of all, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 14, the end of it. And then in verse 16, let us therefore draw near with confidence the throne of grace. And so this passage is centered around those two exhortations, those two phrases those two encouragements. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the first of the two exhortations. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now we're going to get back to and look at this first portion of this verse, our great high priest who has passed through the heavens. We're going to get to that, but let's look at the exhortation first. He says, since then uh, we have such a great high priest, the condition which we'll look at in a minute Let us hold fast our confession. The term hold fast, krateo in Greek, speaks of grabbing hold forcefully. Forcefully. You're you're grabbing. You're you're grabbing on forcefully. It speaks of grasping, holding on, clinging to. And it's in the present tense. Let us continually, habitually grab on to, hold on to, cling to, uh, what is it that we are to cling to? Our confession. Our confession. And what is he talking about there? What does he mean by this term confession? Well, we know that the term confession, uh, translated here, comes from the Greek word homologia, which means same and to say. To say the same thing. To say the same thing. It's the same word that's used uh, in 1 John 1. And if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so here, I believe in context, we're going to see this has to do with our confession concerning what God has said about his son, Jesus Christ. It is our confession of faith in Jesus Christ. He says here, since then we have so great a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. There we go. Let us hold fast our confession notice the subject the author says our confession he includes himself inspired by the spirit and our confession is in our great high priest jesus the son of god our confession is in the lord jesus christ indeed scripture uses this term confession to speak of a verbal acknowledgement a verbal acknowledgement of the lord and our relationship with him Look at John uh, chapter 10. John chapter 10. We'll look at a few verses. And, you know, I go through a lot of verses. And so, you know, if you're getting distracted by zooming past here and there, when I say look at something, feel free to just listen to it and take a note of the verse and look at it later. That's fine. Either way, whatever works for you. Whatever works for you. John chapter 10, verse 32. 
Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. We see in Hebrews chapter 3 that Jesus is the focus of our confession. Hebrews 3, I'll read this for you. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. That's the context. Jesus is the confession. He is our confession. And you remember Peter. You can turn here. First, or first, first Matthew. No, there's only one Matthew. Matthew. <laughs> first gospel. There you go. Uh, Matthew chapter 16. Let's take a look at Peter's confession. And we're going to see that our confessions are not of man. We don't just figure out all of a sudden, yes, I believe in you, Jesus. God works in us by his spirit through his word. He reveals the, the truth concerning his son, and we respond in faith. Respond in faith. Matthew 16, verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he began, he began asking his disciples, saying, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The truth concerning Jesus is unknowable apart from the scripture brought forth by the Spirit of God, God bringing it forth for us. We don't just figure it out on our own and then say, okay, I think I'll go with that. God works in our hearts through his word to bring us to acknowledge the same thing that God says about Jesus in our hearts and then in our words. And so then here we see that. And indeed, we need to confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. You know, the reality is we believe that's how we're saved. It's through faith. But that faith is going to work if it's real. It's going to work. No one's going to believe in Jesus and at that same moment uh, not, not acknowledge that he is who he is. Romans chapter 10. Turn there if you like. Romans chapter 10, verse 8. In the context of the Jews who tried to be righteous through their works rather than by faith and failed and were in current unbelief, uh, Paul makes the case that, hey, we're preaching the same thing was preached in the Old Testament. It's faith. And he quotes the Old Testament. He says here, but what does it say? That's Deuteronomy. But the word is near you, in your mouth. That is the word of faith that we're preaching. And back in Deuteronomy, it was basically, you can't obey the commandments, but you can obey the one command to turn to him with all your heart. You can do that, because God will enable you to do that. And so he says here that the word of faith, which we're preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, and resulting in righteousness, with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. There's a connection between believing. What we believe in our hearts is going to come out in our words. We're going to make a confession. At some time, if you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're going to acknowledge with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. You're going to confess him. You're going to agree with that. You're going to agree with God. And so, again, remember, this confession is not which we have discerned or figured out on our own. It is revealed from above, like uh, 
the Lord Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that this wasn't revealed uh, by, by man, but from, from my Father who is in heaven. We said, and I'm just paraphrasing that. So then our confession is, concerned, is concerning Jesus Christ. It is our verbal acknowledgement concerning our great high priest, the, Jesus, the Son of God. Now, we're going to look at our great high priest in a moment because that's really important. Because it puts uh, skin on it, for lack of a better term, on, on who our Savior is and what he did for us and how he can understand and how we can go to him. Yes, we are complete in Christ, but what does that mean? This same Christ is ready and available for us to go to in a real relationship, as we'll say. So then, uh, this should motivate us. Uh, we hold fast to our confession to, to believe what we have confessed, to remember what we have confessed, that he is God, he is the Son of God, he is the Lord who is salvation, he is the one who died for our sins. It should motivate us. And in Scripture, God does use the, the statement of our previous confession to motivate us to do the right thing. He would do that with the Corinthians. They had gotten a, a, a raw attitude towards Paul because of the false teachers. They had poisoned uh, 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 them against Paul. And Paul, and from that, they were going to give a gift to Jerusalem to help them out who were starving, and they kind of gave up on that. They said, hey, forget it. Maybe Paul's a bad guy. Maybe he's going to steal it. Whatever it was. And so the Apostle Paul reminds them of their confession of faith and uses that to motivate them to actually give what they first promised. Second Corinthians chapter 9. I'll read this, verse 13. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them all, while we, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. You are holding forth your confession when you're loving your brothers. It's an example of your, of your, of your verbal confession. He says here, uh, obedience to your confession of the gospel. And we know uh, that the Apostle Paul exhorted Timothy to fight the good fight. Hey, Timothy was a guy like us. He was a little uh, timid at times. Timothy, timid, right? But God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and discipline. Timothy needed to be encouraged in that, right? He needed to be encouraged. And we see in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. You made the acknowledgement that you have eternal life through Jesus Christ. You've been saved. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight based on who you are now in Christ and what you have confessed concerning him. We know in Hebrews chapter 10, he'll say in verse 22, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Hold fast. Grab on to it. Grab on to the basis of your relationship with Jesus. You believe that he is the Lord. You believe that he is God. You believe he is the Christ, the one who died for your sins. Hold on to that when tough times come. Because it's so easy to let go of that. We start to wallow in things and think, man, and our God becomes so small. And so, so pitiful in our minds, rather than the God who is above all things, who we believed and saved us and confessed faith in. 
So notice we're to hold on to our confession. One pastor writes, Our confession of faith is our oral acknowledgement of faith in Jesus Christ and Lord. Then it is our state of life based on that confession, a profession or declaration that the faith of the faith which we professed. We, 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 we believe what we've confessed. We believe what we confessed. So then God uses the memory of our confession of faith in Jesus to motivate us, to remind us in what and who we have believed in. Who we have believed in. And notice, he is our great high priest, the Son of God. So we have the exhortation, let us continually be holding fast our confession. And notice here, I believe he's going to talk about why. Why we should hold fast. And that's back in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest. First thing. First thing, let us be continually holding fast our confession. Since then, this introduces a logical inference about what was previously said or concerning an exhortation that comes afterwards. And so it's, that's what it is. Since then, we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's hold fast our confession. Since that's who he is, that's who you believed in, and guess what? There's more information about him. Then let us continually, habitually hold fast. But what does he mean by this term, great high priest? What does he mean by that? Well, let me remind you that through the book of Hebrews, the high priesthood of Jesus is exalted. In chapter 2, verse 17, the writer makes it clear that Jesus had to take on human flesh. He had to be made like his brethren so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In chapter 3, we're to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. In chapter 7 to 9, we see Jesus' high priestly ministry exclusively. But what does it mean? Yes, we have a great high priest, but what does that mean, practically speaking? Well, first of all, we need to understand from the Old Testament what the high priest is and was. Let me review a little bit about priests from the Old Testament. In the law, priests were appointed by God as mediators between God and his people. Now, concerning the high priest in the Old Covenant, only he could offer the highest sacrifice, and it was offered once a year on the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would pass through the three areas of the temple into the Holy of Holies. He would pass through into the Holy of Holies, and he would offer and sacrifice for himself because he's sinful, okay? It's still not that part doesn't relate to Jesus, but the high priestly part does, and we'll see that. And then for all the people, blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat to atone as a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. Now this was done year after year after year, and as declared later in Hebrews, because it was only a shadow and it could not make those perfect, uh, it was never designed to take away sins, but to point to the one whose once-for-all sacrifice would take away our sins. So Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one, as we will see, who has passed through the heavens. He has died and, and risen from the dead. He has brought about our salvation uh, from sins. Notice he says here, since there we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And immediately, this book written to Jews, uh, believers, but also those who were hanging out and were ready to turn away from Jesus, we know that, 
uh, he says here, they would understand, first of all, uh, this idea of passing through. Because, as I just shared, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would pass through those areas into the Holy of Holies. He would pass through and accomplish the symbolic sacrifice for sins. And so Jesus fulfilled the shadow and symbolism, having passed through the heavens, uh, having accomplished redemption, and now having sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so we see this, we see this explained in Hebrews 9 and Hebrews 10, where Jesus alone is the superior high priest, uh, superior to all the old covenant priests, because he has given a perfect sacrifice once for all and has passed through the heavens and is now sat down at the right hand of the Father. And so with that in mind, let's take a look at what the writer of Hebrews has to say later on in chapter 9. This time I do want you to turn it because I'm going to go through a lot here. Uh, Hebrews 9, and it's going to explain. It's going to explain what we just talked about. What we just talked about. And so the author is proving that Christ is superior to the Old Covenant system, that he fulfills it, that it was a shadow, it was a picture. It never did anything but point to the one who would do it all, Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.24, For Christ did not enter a holy place made with him with hands, a mere copy of the true one. Notice there, he's talking about the Old Covenant uh, copy versus the real one, Right? He says, but, in, but into heaven itself, uh, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Wow, there's just, just, just gems here. We're mining, we're, we're, we're pulling out gold nuggets, right? And, and jewels here. Look at this. Uh, Nor was it that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood, not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer one, often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed man once to die, and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Chapter 10. For the law, since it is only the shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices year by year, which they offer continually, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to be offered because the worshippers, once, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then here's an amazing portion. I always mention this, but this is a conversation between the Son and the Father before taking on human flesh. This is a conversation. We get to, we get to listen into this heavenly reality. He says here, Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. Wow, that's great. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the roll of the book it is written of me, To do thy will, O God. And after saying, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast not desired, nor hast taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do thy will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The first would be the old covenant shadow the second is the new covenant in the reality of what christ did 
by this will. That will was Jesus taking on a human flesh, coming according to God's will. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, that's speaking of Jesus, uh, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Isn't that great? He has passed through the heavens. He has accomplished the work of salvation. We have a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has finished the work. The work is done. It is finished. And it is through his one-time sacrifice for all that we receive the forgiveness of sins. We have a great high priest. He did the work. He brought salvation. It wasn't like the old covenant ones that needed a sacrifice for themselves. He was a sinless, spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But it doesn't end here. Notice what he says here. Who who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. I believe he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is fully man and fully God. Jesus Remember what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew 1.21, and you shall name him Yeshua, you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The term Yeshua, uh, the Jesus means the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. It speaks of his humanity. You shall name him when he's born. It's his humanity, right? And then we see here the term Son of God. That speaks of deity. That speaks of deity. Indeed, every Jew, when they would heard that, they would go, that speaks of deity. You know, they, they wanted to throw stones at him because he was making himself out to be the son of God. Now, there are the twisters and the evil people like the Jehovah's Witnesses who say, well, he's his son. That's not, he's not God. He's just, no, he's God the son. They understood it meant deity. They understood that. Uh, turn to Psalm 2. Psalm 2. This is where we see this. When the Jew understood the, the idea of the son of God, it came from Psalm 2. It came from Psalm 2. It's interesting, you have Psalm 1, which is, hey, the wicked and the righteous. You know, out of 150 Psalms, five books in the Psalms, you have this basis, hey, yearn for the word, meditate day and night, don't walk the way that evil people walk, be in the word, right? Foundational, right? And then secondly, we have the second Psalm, which speaks about the Lord's all power being God, right? And that we should worship him alone, right? Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the people devising a vain thing? Hey, that sounds like our government these days, right? <laughs> uh, the kings of earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel again, together against the Lord, against his anointed. That would be the Messiah. That would be the Christ. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell tell the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Now in Acts 13.33, we see that clearly is not speaking of being brought about, created. It's speaking of the fact that he has been revealed in the resurrection as his son. Acts 13.33, he has been manifest as the son of God. You can look at that later. 
This very same quote speaks of the resurrection, by the way. And he says here, uh, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations a sign inheritance. You see, Jesus died and rose from the dead, and he's going to receive glory and honor from everyone. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord because of his humility, because of what he did. Philippians chapter 3. And so he says here, Ask of me, and surely I give the nations as thy inheritance, and the very ends of the earth is thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, and shatter them with earthenware. Now, O king, show discernment, take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence, and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to who? The Son. You, 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 God said in Deuteronomy, you should worship the Lord alone, right? Worship God alone, right? This, the Son is God. Do homage to the Son lest he become angry and he, you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. God the Son. We have so great a high priest who has passed through the heavens accomplishing salvation. Jesus, God who took on human flesh. Tremendous, tremendous. In Hebrews 1.8, uh, he would say, but of the Son, he says, thy throne, O God, that's the speaking of God, is forever and ever in his righteous scepter and the scepter of his kingdom. Clear reference to the eternal Son being God. The eternal Son being God. Don't let the evil men and imposters twist words around. Uh, he is God, God the Son. He is the Son of God. So, folks, I don't understand the Trinity fully. You don't understand it either, I bet. It's God, one God, yet revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, uh, co-powerful. <laughs> Just made that up, but uh, we know it's true. Um, one God, three persons. One God, three persons. And here we have our great high priest who has accomplished salvation, Jesus, the Son of God. Therefore, let us hold fast our confession. That's who you confessed in. You didn't confess in a wimpy little Jesus that can't do anything for you. You didn't confess in a, in a Jesus that's your little boy that runs around and does whatever you call him to do. You made your confession in Jesus, the Son of God. That's who you believed in. And that's who saved you. So hold fast to it. When the world comes around and gives you a, a whooping, when, uh, when the circumstances uh, bear down on you, whatever it might be, when sinful man bears down on you, when difficulties come, don't forget who you confessed your faith in. Confess, you confessed it in Jesus, the Son of God. That's what you need to do. You need to remember that. Now we're going to see it goes much farther than that. It's even, it's even better than that. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast. He's great. He's great. So then we need to get back to the truth and remember who we held fast to. We need to look at the truth and renew our hearts and minds with that. We don't need programs or systems or methods or purposes. We need a person, the person of Jesus Christ. The bad guys will give you all the other things. We need Jesus. We need Jesus, the person of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus. When you are tempted... Do you focus on Jesus through the word and prayer? Do you focus on him? Do you go to Jesus, our great high priest? We're going to see he's wonderful, that he actually understands, that he can sympathize, and he does sympathize with our human frailty and weakness. He does sympathize. So who are you clinging to? 
We like to cling to our pity parties. We're certainly tempted to do that. We like to cling to our anger. We like to cling to whatever it might be. We need to cling to Jesus, right? Cling to Jesus. He's a great high priest. He died for you. He gave his life for you. He gave his life for us. So cling to Jesus. Now, next, we're going to see the second half here is we need to continually draw near. Cling to him. Hold to your confession of who he is. This is who he is. I believe this in faith. Now I need to go to that person. I need to go to him, okay? Look at what we see in our passage. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We just looked at all that. Now notice this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Oh, that's sweet. That is sweet because we are weak, as we'll see. We're frail. We, we, are, we are tempted. We're, we, we trip up. We're, we're, we're human in a, in a world of sin and sinners, including our own. Right? He says here, sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, we are yet without sin. There's the key there, okay? Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, before we look at this second exhortation to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, to, to continually draw near to the throne of grace, as we'll see, let's take a look at a few things. We need to picture some of these things rightly. I don't think we see things rightly, by the way. I don't think when we come to the Lord at times we see him as being on the throne, <laughs> You know, God says the throne of grace. We've got to think about Jesus is on the throne. He is the, he's the king of kings and lord of lords. This is a throne, and the king of kings and lord of lords, our great high priest, dispenses grace. It's a grace dispenser. He dispenses grace to us, to us. Our great high priest is Jesus, the son of God, who is on the throne. He's on the throne. He's on the throne. Let us therefore draw near with confidence the throne that is characterized by grace. Again, we'll go back and look at 15 in a minute because it's really important, but let's take a look at this second exhortation and we'll go back and look at the things that support it. Well, what is grace? The word grace, charis, that speaks of an unearned gift, unearned favor, uh, non-notorious favor. It speaks of favor freely bestowed as a gift, never in return for anything or any work done. It speaks of unmerited favor, but yet in Scripture we see that grace is a characteristic, a, a, uh, a very uh, part of, the, 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 of who God is, as we're going to say. Even in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, the writer Paul writes, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. God's grace has been manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. We see grace in the context of all God does for us, which we don't deserve. And he does it through Christ, through Christ. One pastor writes, grace is that which God does for mankind through his son, which man cannot earn, does not deserve, will never merit. It's what God does through his son, Jesus. That's what grace is. And we see that Jesus is, is grace personified. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, that through your, his poverty, his poverty, you might become rich. That's his grace. He took on human flesh to enter the sphere of sin and sinners without sin, to be horribly treated to the point where he's delivered to the cross. Do you think you have it bad? He suffered for us. He suffered for us, and then he suffered and died. We didn't deserve that. 
my terrible sinfulness, I didn't, and he did that for me? You don't, he doesn't, you, didn't, you didn't deserve it either. It wasn't that you were so special, so wonderful. He said, I'm going to go do all three. It was grace. It's grace. It's grace. We know that the, the apostles, when they saw the word who became flesh, uh, John said he's full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth, John 1. We know that grace is everything from him and nothing from us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's by his grace we've been saved. So let us therefore draw near, and we'll see this with confidence, the throne of grace. Now this term draw near is in the present tense. It insists it should be our regular practice. We should be drawing near the throne of grace which implies we need grace, we need favor, which means we're humbling ourselves, we're acknowledging, I'm not in control, this is not good, I can't do this, I can't, I can't do it. Lord, I need you, I need you. should be our regular practice to draw near to Jesus Christ, our great high priest who is on the throne, characterized by grace. And sadly, one of our biggest problems is we're so far from God in our hearts at times. We're so far from him, we're not praying and coming to him and thinking about him in this manner we just get sidetracked and all the other stuff and we need to draw near continually draw near based on his truth concerning who he is our confession of faith and in the context of prayer so why should we draw near we're gonna have some explanations here some good reasons why some good reasons Look at uh, our passage again. Since therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, hold fast. For, explaining, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are. You say, no one understands me. Well, the Lord does. And he's sympathetic. We need sympathy. He enters into our pain, in a sense. We'll see that through having been tempted himself in his humanity and suffering. He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He suffered at the hands of sinners and sinful mankind. He understands. Let us, therefore, draw near. Hold fast our confession, draw near, because here... We do not have a high priest like the other ones that can't sympathize. We have one that can sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a sympathetic high priest. And guess what? If you want true sympathy, it's not out there in the world. All right? You're, you're, you're hoping to get it from your people around you. Hopefully your brothers and sisters are, but don't count on that. You need the Lord. The Lord is a sympathetic high priest. He's not going to fail you. He's not going to fail you. He says here, sympathetic. The term sympathetic comes from the Greek word soon, patheo. Patheo means to, comes from the word pasco, which means to suffer. Soon is the Greek preposition. It means with. To suffer with. And you think about the idea of sympathy, you're entering into emotionally, in a sense, by understanding someone's suffering. You're entering into that. You have sympathy for that. And we are so unsympathetic at times. We are so hardened in our our hearts. We need to be more like Jesus, by the way. And God's doing that. He's working on us. But don't count on people. Count on him. Don't go to people. Yes, God may use them to encourage you. Praise the Lord. God did that. But you go to him. You go to him. 
He says, we do not have a high priest, that's picture again, who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Now, this term weaknesses, infirmities, doesn't refer to sin because it speaks of the Lord and that sympathizing. It, it, it relates to uh, our feeble weakness, uh, all the natural limitations of humanity. Our humanity is not made to take the evil around us. It is not made to take the death and the, the pain. It's not made to do so. We're, we, we're on our way to glory. It's going to be different in heaven, okay? But our humanity, we have weakness. We have human weakness. We have human weakness. Remember in Matthew chapter 4 that in the Lord's humanity was the battleground for Satan tempting him. In his humanity. Jesus was tempted in the context of natural human weakness, not sin, such as hunger, such as loneliness, such as grief. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. That is a sphere of humanity where you're not sinning at times. Sometimes we can, can turn to sin, but you can be and have grief without sin. Jesus did because of the wickedness of others, the wickedness of his creation. And that is a temptation then within that to sin, Right? But he understands. He understands. And let me make it clear that Jesus Christ was sinless. That he committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. That he was the unblemished and spotless Lamb of God. That in him there's no sin, 1 John 3.5. Paul makes it clear that he who knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And we see in our text that He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Without sin. Now, I'm not going to get into the full discussion of Jesus' impeccability. What does that mean? Uh, The absolute inability for him to yield or fall to sin because of him being fully God. But what we see in Matthew and other passages is that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Not only did he have a divine nature that could not sin, he had a human nature, yet his human nature was not corrupted by sin. And Jesus, therefore, because he is God in human flesh, could not sin. But yet, now some people say, well, then he could have been tempted. Well, that's not true, because the Bible says he was tempted. Okay? Yet, within the context of his human nature, he was tempted with real temptations, yet incapable of sinning, yet within his humanity who is tempted in the context of human frailty, weakness, and suffering. As I mentioned, it said he learned obedience through the things which he suffered. You know, when you're suffering, maybe not because of sin, but because of the sinful effects of this creation, uh, what is some medical thing or something else, you know, when you're suffering, Jesus understands. He understands, not from the standpoint of sin, but from righteousness, and but yet compassion. He understands what you're going through, and he is there to help. He is there to help. We need to see this. We are not designed to withstand temptation. Maybe you're prideful, you think you can, well, you just failed, okay? Failed in a different way. We are not designed. We need Jesus, the only person who truly can sympathize with our weaknesses. Because he became like us. He understands your human frailty and the effect of sin and sinners on you. And the effect of suffering. He understands. 
He understands. In Scripture we see, chapters, Hebrews 2, 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren, that means in humanity, in all things, yet we know without sin, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He had to become like us. That he could be merciful and faithful. Mercy's good. Mercy's good. I want a merciful high priest. I don't deserve it, but he's going to be merciful. And I want one that needs one that's faithful, right? It's going to follow through. Merciful and faithful. He grew up with parents that were sinners like you and I. Guess what? Jesus didn't grow up in the perfect family. He grew up in a family. Yes, Mary was new to the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. But he grew up in a, in, a, in a family that had sinners, right? He learned obedience. I've mentioned this before. Hebrews 5, 8, from the things which he suffered. He learned in his humanity to obey. You think, what is that? How's that going to be? That shows his humility. That God would be so humble to not use his deity, but to walk in dependence to the Father for our benefit. He learned obedience from the things he suffered. He was tempted by Satan. So are we, right? Uh, he went hungry. Matthew 4, we know that. He had no place to lay his head. Luke 9:58. We see he grew weary and was tired. Was tired. You think, oh, we're vulnerable when we're tired. We are weak. We are weak when we are physically limited. He was lied to. He was falsely accused. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one from whom men hid their face. Can you imagine that? He made everyone, and they rejected, and they turned away from him. He understands the emotions of humanity, by the way, yet without sin. You think it's some emotionless God. No, he took on human flesh. Took on human flesh. He was betrayed, he was beaten, he suffered physically, he was reviled, he was crucified. He experienced human temptation and the effect of sinful humanity to the max. To the max. We need to look to Jesus. I'm not telling you don't look to other people to get encouraged, but don't look to other people to get encouraged. (laughs) I guess I am, I guess. Go to the Lord. And if God wants to send someone to encourage you, praise the Lord. We should be encouraging one another. But don't look to them, look to him. Because man will let you down. Man will let you down. We have Jesus Christ, the dispenser of grace to those who approach his throne. Let's approach it more often. Let's approach it more often when things don't go the way that we think they should go. We're hurt, we're, 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 we're sinned against, uh, whatever it might be. We're suffering physically. Our loved ones are suffering physically. Things are happening Got to go to the Lord. Jesus understands. This scripture makes it clear. On the authority of his word, he is sympathetic. We need a sympathetic high priest. Let us therefore draw near with confidence the throne of grace. And notice what happens when we draw near with confidence. Now this term confidence means uh, an openness that comes from a lack of fear. You know, if you're, a child is confident to run up, daddy, 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 you know. There's no fear. Now, if the daddy was a bad daddy, maybe there'd be fear. But this term confidence means there's an openness, no lack of fear. Let us draw near with confidence, therefore, since we have a sympathetic high priest, one who's been tempted to all things, yet without sin. Let us draw near with the proper attitude, confidence, confidence, lack of fear. We understand he's accomplished salvation. He broke the sin barrier. 
We trust in him alone. We recognize that he is a sympathetic high priest. He's not going to come to you and put you down for coming to him. He's not going to put you down. You know, James talks about, um, you know, if you lack wisdom, ask in faith. And the Lord gives it without reproach, without reproach. He doesn't reproach you for asking for wisdom. He gives you wisdom. If you trust him, you believe it. But this is personal. Like I said, we're going through Colossians, and we can see the things that we're going to study theologically. We need to look at the rest of Scripture and see it personally. Personally. In him we are complete. Jesus is in him all the fullness of deity dwells, and we've been made complete in him. Therefore, go to him. Go to him. He's sympathetic. He's sympathetic. So notice this. If we have a proper view of Jesus, we can draw near, right? We can draw near. Some people who have a warped view of God and self try to draw near through works or sacraments or whatever it might be. That's a warped, evil view. We only draw near because Jesus has broken the barrier between us and God through his the forgiveness of sins, dying for our sins. And we can draw near with confidence. With confidence. Do you prayerfully draw near to your great high priest with confidence, not fearing and notice what he says. Here's what will happen when we do this. We've got to believe this. It's by faith, by the way, but it's true. It's true. God says so. That we may, middle of verse 16, receive mercy, first thing, and then find grace to help in time of need. And if you are honest, we've got times of need all the time. Again, we have difficulties in this life. We have circumstances. We have sinful people around us. We have uh, uh, the fallen world. We have medical problems. We have death and we have people dying. We got dogs that are hurt. Whatever it might be, we got stuff happening around us. We need to turn to Jesus, a merciful and faithful high priest who sympathizes. And notice what it says, first of all, that we may receive mercy. Now, in this passage... He says this that here is actually a Greek uh, conjunction henna, which means in order that, it speaks of the purpose. That we draw near with confidence for the purpose of getting something here. So we'll see that first of all, we might receive mercy. Mercy. You know, the Lord wants us to love mercy, to be merciful, like our Heavenly Father. We're not perfect, we fail, but He is perfect, and He's merciful. The term mercy speaks of, uh, uh, it stresses the pitiable condition of man uh, which, which, which he cannot escape uh, and the uh, help that comes to one who is helpless. The person is helpless. Mercy is, is help for the helpless. It's, 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 it has this idea of a compassion with it. You know, if you see someone who is hurt and they cannot help themselves, you should be drawn to compassion for them from the heart to come help them, to be merciful upon them. Lord Jesus talked about that with the, with the uh, parable he shared concerning, um, you know, the, the, you know what I'm talking about, the Samaritan. <laughs> yeah, you, you know what I'm talking about. So here, we need mercy. When we are suffering, when we are helpless, whatever it is, we need mercy. It's helpful to help us. He says you'll receive it. You're going to receive mercy. Think about that. If you have a king on the throne and you, you need, you, you are, you're coming, have mercy on me. 
The Lord's not going to say no. <laughs> he says, you're going to receive it. We have a good king. We have a gracious king. We have a gracious God, a good high priest who understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses. So first of all, we receive mercy. It comes from the throne of Christ. You want mercy from people? Like I said, don't go out and hunt for it. People are cruel. People are sinful. Yes, we are to be merciful, and hopefully we are. And the Lord might send someone to be merciful upon you. But go to him for mercy. Go to him for mercy. He says we might receive help or mercy for our helpless condition. Our helpless condition. And then notice what happens also. And we may find grace. Kind of interesting because you receive mercy, but you find grace. The term speaks of coming across and discovering. I found a nickel. <laughs> I walked on. There it was, right? Uh, you find it. You, you discover it. You come across and you come to the throne of grace and you're going to find and discover grace. Isn't that what we need? We need grace. We need his unmerited favor. We need his mercy. We're struggling. We're tempted to respond. We're tempted to give up. We're tempted to get angry. We're tempted to react. Lord, we're tempted to, to, to wallow in our sorrows. Lord, I come to you. And you're going to find, you're going to, you're going to receive mercy, and you're going to find grace. But notice this grace is actually has, has, a, has a purpose. Notice it says to find grace to help in time of need. The term uh, time of need uh, is two words in Greek. Timely, favorable, at the right time. The second part, uh, help here in this context, it's brought together as words here, speaks of support. It's a nautical term. It's the same exact term used in Act to speak of the chains they would throw around a ship when the ship is about to break apart. They would frap the, the ship. They would put chains around so the boards wouldn't come apart in the storm. So to receive help. Lord, I'm falling apart. This emotional storm, this physical storm, this whatever it is, is tearing me apart. Go to him. He will help you. And it says here, at the right time. At the right time. But see, this is faith. And guess what? When you trust him, he gets all the glory. He gets all the glory. Help in time of need, just at the right time. First Corinthians ten thirteen. No tape, temptation is overtaking you, such as that just is common to men. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may also be able to endure it. That way of escape is Jesus, by the way. In this context, it's Jesus helping you personally. So when you're blasted by the storms of life, the suffering that comes, whatever it might be. Cry out, Lord, I'm coming apart. I, I Help me, Lord Jesus. Go to him. Go to the throne of grace. Go to that throne. He understands. He's sympathetic. He's merciful. He's kind. He's going to hold you together with his mercy and grace. He's going to hold you together. He's going to hold you together. You see, God resists the proud, but he is, uh, he is near those who are humble. If you are prideful in your difficulties and you don't call to Jesus, then you're on your own, and guess what? You know what that suffering is like. You've, you've been through, the, through that. It's no fun. It's no fun. But if you humble yourself and go to the Lord, 
you're going to receive his grace. First Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Notice what comes right there, casting all your anxiety upon him for he cares for you. James 4, 6, but he gives a greater grace, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud. We need to have more so in our hearts, we've got to go to the word to do it, this attitude that David had, Psalm 18, I love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. Sounds familiar, right? The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. And he heard my voice out of his temple. And my cry for help came to him, came into his ears. Is this great? It's great. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous. His faith is against evildoers. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And the real issue is, are you going to Jesus or are you having a sinful reaction to what's happening to you? And we're tempted. We're tempted to sin when things are difficult. We are tempted to sin, but we have a gracious and faithful wonderful, sympathetic high priest. Will you go to him? Will you go to him? May we be the ones who are examples for others. They see God's greatness and his goodness, and they go to the Lord too. So then, how can we find help in the midst of our absolute weakness and temptation? Continually hold tight your confession. You believed in Jesus, the Son of God, who died for your sins. He's our great high priest. He's at the right hand of God right now. And then continually draw near to him and you will receive uh, mercy and find grace to hold you together in time of need. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful, wonderful passage. And you are so good. And Lord, we are frail. We are weak. And things come upon us so quickly and throw us off kilter. And Lord, we ask for your help that we would turn quickly to your son Jesus, that we would remember he is a sympathetic high priest, that we would boldly come before his throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help at the right time. Lord, we thank you so much for your son Help us to learn from this, Lord God. When we're tempted today, we're tempted tomorrow. When these things come upon us and they they break our hearts, have us turn to you. Have us turn to your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.